0: every year well it's a very special moment here on the voluntary tackle podcast uh, today we are joined by true rugby league royalty the man on the other end of the phone has played 265 games for Parramatta between 1980 and 1993 scoring 110 tries in that time and probably setting up three times as many let's be honest. He also has played 17 games for Australia, 17 for New South Wales. He needs no introduction, but we'll give it to him anyway, because otherwise it going be a bit awkward. It's Brett Kenny. Welcome to the show, mate. We really appreciate you coming on. Oh, mate, it's
1: good to be on the show. It's a pleasure. Yeah, no. I don't know about, I don't know about rugby league royalty, but anyway... <laughs> Thanks for the wrap. <laughs> no worries,
0: mate. Well, we'll definitely get into that because that's certainly my claim. Um, and it's also my dad's claim as well. He'll definitely one of his favourite players. So um, I've just gone up in his estimation a lot. <laughs> now, in your career, Brett, um, there's so much ground to cover, mate. Um, we, you know, you've got a lot of achievements there. But I thought a good place to start might be with how you got involved with the game. Um, I understand you grew up playing baseball. How did you end up transitioning from baseball to rugby league?
1: Yeah, well... well. Well, it was at, at one of my neighbours, um, one of the kids that I went to school with, He lived about two doors up the road, and uh, one day he, he said he was going down to um, one of the local football clubs, that being Guildford Leagues, and to have a game of football, and would I like to come with you? And I said, oh yeah, I'll come down, and and um, as you said, I, I was I was playing baseball, and or t-ball at that stage, and, and my dad was a baseballer, and he actually played for Australia, and so that was a, my whole family, was a baseballing and family. And, but I just thought I'd give it a go, I'd go down and have a look and see what it was all about, this game the rugby league. And, and um, I think uh, my neighbour, he, he stayed there for 12 months, I stayed there I think for 12
0: years. And how old were you when you went along and played your first game?
1: Um, I think I was around about eight years of age.
0: Yeah, right.
1: So um, I, I, I don't know whether you would say I, I was a natural, a, a, I mean, a lot of things come sort of easy to me. My hand-eye coordination obviously was, was quite good because of the baseball. Um, and obviously, I played cricket at school. But, uh, yeah, we just took a little bit of time, you know, and uh, to get used to the game and, and learn how to how to defend properly and how to catch a football and how to kick a football. And uh, But I, I used to, you know, I enjoyed sort of, uh, fishing at, at home with different things and um, behind my mum and dad's place was, was just all paddock, it was an old brick pit and and um, one of the neighbours up the road, he um, actually put a uh, made a goal post and put it at out the, the back behind his house, uh, nice. behind the backyard and so used to sort of practice kicking kicking the ball trying to kick goals over that goal post and um, Obviously it didn't work because he didn't become a goal
0: kicker,
1: but, <laughs> but um, it was just things like that I used to do and it, it obviously always helped uh, in my game.
0: When you first started playing the game, do you remember whereabouts you ended up sort of playing on the field?
1: Yeah, well look, I, I, I started, it's funny because I started at eight, and then um, I got moved to the centres as I got a bit older. Um, I, I obviously had a little bit of speed as well. So I thought, obviously, coaches felt that was a better position for me was centre, but started at 5'8", moved to the centres, got graded at Parramatta as a centre, started my first great career as a centre, and then went back to 5'8". So <laughs> I guess it just just went around in circles. So, uh, yeah, but 5'8 was probably the first position I played in as a kid.
0: Now, um, I'm, I'm at odds to bring this up, Brett, but um, as a big Roosters fan myself, but are the rumours true that you were a big South fan growing up?
1: Yes, <laughs> yes, I was, and, and I. Uh, it's, it's funny because you you look at things now, and I look at some of these young guys playing for Parramatta now, and people say, "Oh, you know, they don't know who you are," and and it is—it's a fact. A lot of them don't. You know, I remember being—I introduced myself to Dylan Brown. Dylan Brown had no idea who I was. Oh, and, really? You know, I'd say to people, "Yeah, you know," I said, "You can't." You know, they said, "Oh, but he plays in the same position you played in." I said, "Yeah, but." He may not have even been a Parramatta supporter when he was a kid. And the reality is, I think he was a rugby union player when he was a younger bloke, and, and he come from New Zealand. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I sort of didn't know much about the Parramatta players from the 60s and 70s, but I knew, I knew all the South Sydney players. And that was quite strange when I went to Parramatta and got graded there that, uh, you know, there were some people I was introduced to that I really didn't know who they were until <laughs> someone explained to me that, look, they played in the 60s and 70s, and that was one of those things. But, yeah, I was a South supporter
0: as a kid. And that's so in a way, you were, you were the Dylan Brown of your day, probably introduced to all these legends before you, and you had a bit of a blank look on your face.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know, it, it, it's one of those things. I mean, I, I, I did sort of look a little bit. At, I went and watched a couple of Parramatta games as I got older. It was seventeen, eighteen, but but uh, the reality is I I'd sort of I was still a South supporter, and... Um, I know even when I was graded, I was playing under-23s at Parramatta and when we played South Sydney, I was obviously hope that we beat them in the under-23s. I think I played reserve day the first time we played South. and um, When I was watching the first grade game, I was hoping South Sydney
0: win Wow, so it did run deep then. Do you, do you <laughs> still have a soft spot for Souths these days, Brett, or are you a blue and gold man died through and through now?
1: Oh, I mean, look, obviously, you know, I, I support Parramatta and... Um, you know, I've, I've played there for 13 years, had 13 good years there and, and enjoyed my football, played with a lot of great players. And, and so, yeah, you know, I, I'd, 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 I'm i always going to be, obviously, a Parramatta supporter, but I, I don't mind watching some teams. I, I, Melbourne, I think, is a, a side I enjoy watching them play football. Mm. Um, the Roosters, I enjoy watching them play. So there's a, a number of teams that I... I look at them and would like to, you know, always like watching play because of the style they play.
0: Brett, it's interesting to me, um, how did you end up playing for the Eels? Obviously, you probably had aspirations of playing for South. So can you tell me a little bit about how that all came about?
1: Well, I was actually... I, I got selected to play Jersey Flag, And then back in those days, I think Jersey Flag was under-17s or under-16s. Right. So I, and I played that season in the Jersey Flag, and and then um i think the following year or, or two years later i was, was asked to try out for what was president's cup which was under 21s um while i was trialling for the under 21 or the president's cup we actually had a trial game against the under 23 trialists so all the guys that wanted to try out for under twenty three from play grade, we played against them and after that weekend's games i got a phone call from uh, Ron Fernley who was the brother of Terry Fernley who coached there in 79 who uh, right. was the first grade coach at Parramatta in 79 I got a call from Ron Fernley saying that they wanted me to come over and trial for the under 23s not the President's Cup so I did that and um, was very fortunate it's a lot different than, than what it is today where I had a lot more opportunity to um, impress the selectors and I played I think we had about five Five or six games, or trial games, and and um, it was quite funny actually. Because I remember I played at a trial against Manly down at Cookvale Oval, and um, back then they had, I think, four four teams, four or five teams of players trial, just for under 23s Wow! And I was I was in a way I was fortunate. I was selected in team four or three, so I played early in the morning, and then came off, had a shower, got in the car. And um, with my mum and dad, and we drove back out to Blacktown so I could play baseball that afternoon at three o'clock. So um, <laughs> very good. Um, and then, and then got graded. I got graded that year, 1980, uh, as an under 23 player. So yeah, that's how it started. I, we just trialled for the under 21s, which was a junior rep team, and finished up. Then asked to trial for 23, and got graded that year.
0: It's funny how it happens, Brett. I'm interested. You said that you, you know, you were dashing across town to play baseball. Um, did you still have aspirations of playing baseball at the time? Were you playing both sports simultaneously obviously were your parents secretly hoping as a baseball family you'd end up playing baseball instead?
1: Well no actually my dad said to me stick with rugby league because at least you can make some money out of it because at the time um, with baseball it wasn't as big as what it is now um, in Australia and obviously when I was playing you, you, you used to watch the games from America and you used to fantasise about possibly maybe playing there one day and, and being good enough to play at that level. But, um, yeah, I was, as I said, I was uh, 19 when I got graded at Parramatta. So I knew in 1980 or in the summer of, of the summer of 79, 1980, that um, that was going to be my last year, my last time playing baseball. Yeah. Uh, because of the fact that, the, Trials and training with rugby league, it was going to interfere with that. I, I couldn't, I wouldn't have the time to be playing baseball and do all that training. And obviously, trial games for the rugby league would, would take preference. So, um, yeah, I, I knew then I was going to have to give it up. And as I said, my dad said to me, you know, as much as I think he probably would have liked me to go on and keep playing baseball and, and hopefully go into bigger and better things with it, he realised that at the time um, I was getting paid to play rugby league. All the a thousand dollars a year, but anyway, it was
0: better than nothing. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be following my pocket too, Brett. Um, I'm interested. Just going out in the limb, Were you a batter or a pitcher? I'm gonna I'm gonna guess you were a batter at baseball. Well, I, I
1: I pitched a little bit, not not that often, and the basic most of the time I played shortstop or second base. Okay. Um, I had a nickname of Rowdy because if I got struck out, I would throw the helmet, and throw the bat, and <laughs> I wasn't a happy about it.
0: But
1: um, yeah. I guess a lot of those people say it wasn't a real good sport that way. I just didn't like getting getting out, that was all. But, Fair uh, enough. Yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed playing
0: baseball. Yeah, it just showed you competitive spirit, Brett. Look, um, just back on Parramatta, I know you, you've obviously... You, you were in a crop of players, so many great players uh, during the team that you were a part of. It's probably an unfair question, but can you single out any players that you enjoyed playing with the most or you thought were the most instrumental in that eel side being successful? Oh,
1: look, I... I guess it would be very... It's it's difficult to sort of single out one particular player that I enjoyed playing alongside of. I I mean, I was very fortunate um, to play with some great players at Parramatta and and then obviously as the years went on and played red football, also play you know with some great players at that level. I guess one of the guys that I've always said was very helpful for me from a player's point of view was Mick Cronin. Um, I actually... I made well. I out, played my first first grade game. I came on um, off the bench, uh, and that was actually against South Sydney at Redfern Oval. And uh, Tony Melrose was in the centres with Nick Cronin, and and, um, and got injured. And I got the tap on the shoulder to go on. And and after that weekend, I got graded. Uh, sorry, I got selected to play start in the first grade team against Newtown the following weekend. So I played outside Mick Crannan from there on in, and then later down the track I, I played on the inside of him, obviously playing at 5'8", but Mick sort of really looked after me in those younger days when I was you know, I was 19 years of age, just started playing first grade, and um, so it, he was really helpful, and I've always said I, I firmly believe I was able to achieve a lot in the game, and I wouldn't have been able to do that if it wasn't for the influence and, and the help of uh, Mick Cronin. Uh, back in the
0: early days. Brett, how important is that to have a, a sort of a mentor-type protector character in, when you're coming into first grade like that? Obviously, it was instrumental for you. Do, you. do you think clubs invest in that enough to have new players coming into the squad and having guys sort of assigned to them to look after them and look out for them? Well,
1: look, I, I think sometimes play, um, clubs do look at some players and maybe you know, players that have been around, there, around the club for a long time. have played quite a number of first-grade games and maybe now looking to, to probably, probably play more reserve-grade games than anything else. But they keep them there to help the younger guys. And I think with it now being um, they have a squad and being professional, you'll find these guys are always in the squad. Um, while they may not always play in the NRL, they're there at training and they're helping the young bloke all the time. Yep. Uh, so you'll see some clubs do that. But I, I do tend to think, yeah, you know, that you probably need to have a few more experienced players around the place um, to help some of the young guys, it, 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 especially in some key positions. You look at sure. your half-back, full-back and maybe hooker. Um, if you've got some experience around them, um, whether it be from the halfback's point of view... Um, a 5'80 who's a very experienced player um, or even uh, from the backs so one of the wingers is very experienced and you know, the hooker obviously had front bowlers that are experienced but if he can do that I think it's going to help these guys go on to bigger and better things and instead of having a short career in the NRL they'll have a, an exceptionally long one
0: yeah right um, just in terms of you know your teammates how was it to play and partner up in the halves of Sterlo oh
1: I mean it was it was great. I, I you know, we Stella and I, I guess, came together in, in 1980. But well, when I say came together, we were both playing in first grade by the end of that season. And, and in 1981 was when Jack Gibson moved me to five eight. And uh, from there on in, I sort of we got used to playing alongside each other. And then from there, we moved on to red football, playing in the same positions, half and five eight. And, We really got to know each other's game very, very well. Obviously, that comes down to um, the length of time you're playing alongside each other and and, and experience as well. And uh, it got to the stage really where we never really had to say too much to each other before we knew what was going to happen. And and I sort of, for example, I I would see Stirling drifting across the field, and I know that it would only be a matter of time, and then that you'd come across a bit further, and I would just automatically go back on his inside and I'd look and it was almost like he was saying to me without actually speaking that I'm going to keep coming I need you to go back inside me
0: yeah, Again, right. when
1: you think the time's right and that's what I used to do and uh, yeah it all come down to just experience and, and playing alongside each other for a long time we really sort of got to know each other's game and and uh, look he, he was a great player though, and he's probably one of the greatest halfbacks Australia's ever had produced you know people talk about Andrew Johns and I mean, I, I, Andrew Johns is a great player and I've never experienced playing alongside Andrew Johns but um, and also when you consider when, when we were playing and Sturlow was halfback, there was Steve Mortimer, there was Graham Murray from Queensland, there was a lot of great, Kevin Hastings from the Roosters, a lot of great halfbacks running around and
0: absolutely, um,
1: it was always very difficult to, to get a start in the rep team, once Sturlow got there there was uh, no turning back it, wasn't anyone else got in in front of him until such time as he decided to retire? So <laughs> um, yeah,
0: certainly, well, the greatest halfback I've ever played with. And Brett, were there any like? And I know, obviously, you said your games got to the point where you almost was non-verbal. You sort of had an instinct for each other, where, where you wanted to be on the field with each other. Were there any early teething issues? With I can't imagine Brett Kenny and Peter Sterling ever having a, a game where they just weren't in sync, but. At the very beginning, when you first moved to 5'8", were there times where you had to sit down and work it out or was it pretty much instantaneous?
1: Oh, look, I, I think pretty much instantaneous. I mean, there were a lot of things we used to do at training. Um, and, and I guess, look, that's, that's where you rehearse all those things is, is on the training paddock. paddock. And, and there could be times, you know, where we were doing things and my, my timing could have been out or Stirlay's timing could have been out. Um, Things like that would have happened, obviously, and, and we would sit, you know, go through it again and work it out. Like, okay, well, OK, we'll do it this way or that way. And we'd do it at, on the training paddock until such time as we got it right. There you go. And so then when we went on to the actual playing time and, and uh, playing in the game, we knew what we were doing. We'd rehearsed it and we'd gone through it. We knew what was going to happen and... and um, Look, okay, there, were, there were times early on where, you know, there would be things that would happen and I, he may have drifted across field and I didn't come inside and, you know, we we might have bulged things up a little bit at times, but majority of the time, you know, we got to, as I said, we, we got to know each other's games pretty well and, and um, yeah, we, we didn't really have to say a great deal to each other and obviously, you know, Sterlo was a very good kicker of the football and... Always used to like, you know, we always put the ball up high around the trial, and I used to like jumping up and trying to take the ball, and so that was another part of our game where he would just sort of look either left or right, and where he saw me on either one of those sides, that tended to be the side he put the bomb up for, and and, um, in the hope that I was able to get through and take it, so... Uh, yeah, it, was all, it all comes down to just what we did on the training field and, and we just
0: kept doing it until took that time we got it right. Yeah, and that's just another example of you guys having a natural match there where Sterla liked putting the kicks up and you like catching them. So sometimes you can't really train for that. It's just a, you've got, you both had that natural strength. I, I couldn't have you on, uh, Brett, and not talk about uh, you playing under arguably the greatest coach in rugby league history, Jack Gibson. Can you tell me what it was like to play under Jack and what made him different to other coaches?
1: Well, look, it was a great experience, and 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 I've always said I, I I believe I not only became a better footballer under Jack Gibson, but more importantly, became a better person um, because of the way Jack was with us. He he knew a lot about the game. He, he he spoke a lot about the disciplines of the game, which later on down the track I found out talking to some of the older players like the Mick Cronin and and Bob O'Reillys and Ray Prices and. Or Steve Edge, they would tell you that when Jack used to play, he'd play in the front row, and he wasn't the most disciplined bloke in the world. He'd always be caught up <laughs> having fights and stuff. And they said, Oh, thought, geez, that's amazing, you know." Like when you look at the type of player he was, he's different with his coaching. And but he, that was the thing—he he taught you the disciplines of the game. He he made you feel as if he he cared about you, you know. He, mm. It wasn't like oh, you're just another footballer that runs around. And, he, I remember when he took over Parramatta in 1981, and early on in the season, one of our first couple of training sessions, we had a form we had to fill out with all our personal details, and and I had to put had employment, and I wasn't working at the time, so I've just put not you know no not employed, and within a week he had me working at Parramatta League Club. So wow, uh, you know I. I his, his belief was, but at the end we weren't professional footballers. We had to work as well. He believed if you're not working, you won't get the best out of you as a footballer anyway. So, um, so that's he, he, things like that. He, he, in a lot of ways, he studied his players. He knew his players um, back to front, and um, he could probably tell you things about us that we would have forgotten.
0: Well, um, yeah,
1: that was the type of person he was, and and and. In saying that, a good example is 1983, um, I'd been away on the Kangaroo Tour in 82, um, hadn't missed a game that season, hadn't missed a game in 81, and so I'd had a lot of football under my belt, and, and coming back after the Kangaroo Tour, I, um, I just firstly went straight back into training. I had, had the Christmas break, and then New Year straight back into training, and, Sort of a third of the way through the season, I guess I was really tired. I didn't think I was, but um, Jack called me into his office at, at training on a Tuesday night, and he said to me, "I'm not going to play you this week." And I wasn't real happy about it. I, I said, "I haven't missed a game in two years." And he said, "Well, if you want to play, you can play reserve grade." He said, "I'm not putting in first grade." <laughs> I said, "Oh, okay." He said, "So um, he said, my advice is get your bag, go home." And I don't want to see you until next Tuesday. I don't even come to the game. So I was—I took his advice and 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 went home. And and um, a few weeks later, I started to get back into form and and went on. And, and of course, we won the competition again in '83. And uh, you know, I started to play a lot better. But he knew that I was tired. All I needed was a rest. Um, and that was the type of coach he was. He he knew about that. He he knew he knew his players. He knew what they were like. And yeah, but well wasn't for him doing that to me in 83. I went through the same thing in 1987. And um, so, you know, I, I would never have known if it wasn't for Jack Gibson and what he did in, in 1983. I would never have known that was what was going on. I was just basically exhausted from
0: playing. Well, and as you said, Brett, before, you know, it seems like he knew the players better than they knew themselves at times, which is probably a, a pretty key attribute. Um, just on Jack, did you ever, uh, did he ever have a temper? Did you ever get on the wrong side of him? Did you, I can't imagine you've been an ill-disciplined player, but did he ever have a, um, have the players a bit scared?
1: No, he didn't. And I, and I think that was just the aura of, of Jack. And I know, like, at times, he'd, obviously, in the middle of winter, he'd come in with, with a big jacket on, big long coat, and <laughs> and I used to wonder what was under those coats at times because you heard all those stories about you know Jack Gibson and and that. But um, yeah, he was a, he was a great man and uh, a lovely guy to talk to, and and um, very down to earth. And and as I said, you know, he even at half time he never used to yell and scream, and, and um, he never said a great deal, but he just went got straight to the point. Yeah, I remember uh, in in 1981 against Newtown in that grand final. I think we were, I think we just got in front at half time and we weren't playing all that well. And I thought to myself, this would be the time that Jack will start to shout at us, and he never did. He came in, he said, "Look, you know, you got to do this on the left hand side of the field. We need to tighten this up on the right hand side. I want you doing this. I want you doing that," and he said. That's all I can say. To you. He said, I, I, "He said I'll leave, I'll leave you with this. You've got, you've got, forty minutes to forty minutes to to um, change this game and the rest of your life to think of the result. Think about the result." So I thought, "All right, okay." <laughs> That's, That's a great way, way of framing do. it, isn't it? Yeah, you know, you're just you just basically telling you in the next forty minutes you've got to do something to win this game because. If you don't, you'll be thinking about this for the rest of your life, whether you win or lose. You'll be thinking about it all the time And he, and he was right because you'd still do. We still, even though we won it, we we still think about the game, you know, and what happened and how we did this and how we did that. And I thought, yeah, it's exactly right. And so these were the sorts of things he was like. And as I said, never said too much at half time, but just got straight to the point. And I've often, you know, I've done a little bit of coaching myself, and. And um, I use the same sort of attributes. It, it Just just get straight to the point. Don't keep the players in there talking to them for the sake of talking to them. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Fight, let them get out there and play again.
0: I think a lot of coaches, uh, Brett, are still trying to chase the Jack uh, Gibson mould and they probably will never, never quite get it. But um, certainly a lot of attributes to take with you. I did want to ask you uh, just on your career about your highlights. Now, I mentioned at the top of the interview that there's so many to go through, but do you, do you hold some closer to your heart than others, like in terms of Grand Finals, Origin Series wins or playing for your country?
1: Yeah, look, I guess I was very fortunate. I, I experienced a lot of firsts. I was you know, a member of the first New South Wales side to to win a State of Origin Series. I was a member of the first State side, obviously being New South Wales, to win a Series 3-0. Um, a member of Parramatta's first Premiership winning side. I guess, look, for me, the, the the 81 grand final was always something very special because it was the first grand final Parramatta had won, and in fact, it was the first grand final I'd ever played in. Um, I was never fortunate enough to play in a grand final as a kid, so um, it's, it's something very special to say that first grand final I played in, I won, and it happened to be a you know, or, or first-grade rugby league grand final. Sort of very lucky in a lot of ways, you know, it, um, and it's something that you don't sort of realize until someone brings, up, brings it up and starts talking about your career, and you think back and go, oh yeah, did that, did that. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's and, geez, that was all right, you know. And, but yeah, probably look, as I say, the, the, the 81 Grand Final was very special. My first test match was over in England on the 82 Kangaroo Tour. Um, obviously, 1985 State of Origin. The New South Wales, we won the series for the first time. 86 was very special also because of the fact that we won the series 3-0 and we were the first state to ever do that. Yep. So, they're yeah, very special to me. And also playing at Wembley Stadium in the Challenge Cup final for Wigan is something that I always hold dear to my heart. And, and uh, yeah, so, and as I said, very fortunate to uh, be able to achieve a lot in the game.
0: Brett, just on that Wigan uh, Challenge Cup final um, versus Hull, I I went and had a look at as many highlights as I could find of that match. And and certainly the first half was just a Brett Kenny highlights package. But it just looked like an amazing game of football. And I did notice you were lining up against your Parramatta half, Peter Sterling, on the other side. Um, Can you just tell the listeners a little bit about your memories of that game? It just seemed like such a magical game to be a part of.
1: Yeah, look, it was a, it was a fantastic day, and and um, as I say, it was a it was a magical game to be part of, and just the arena itself was was an amazing experience for me. And I'd actually watched FA Cup finals in the English Premier League, um, obviously played at at, at Wembley Stadium, and, and never could never have imagined that I'd ever play there. But um, it was just a, a magnificent arena. You came out of the change rooms, which I've got to say. Back, this is back in '90s. People got to remember it's 1984, 85. Yeah. Change rooms out here. Some of our grounds were disgraceful, but over there, it was just magnificent, it was magnificent. change rooms, and you walked up this long tunnel, and as soon as that the crowd saw the ball boys appear, they knew the players were behind them, and there was this almighty roar. There's a hundred thousand people there, and you got out and you looked around, and it was just a sea of red, white, and black um obviously old black and white wig and red and white so uh just yeah absolutely magnificent and um just to be there and to hear the crowd and then go through the formalities which is probably something that i wasn't that too concerned about and, and that but i know it's all part of what they do over there but uh you know we got introduced to all the different dignitaries and that and I must admit, I, I was hoping, well, before the game, I was hoping maybe we might get to meet Princess Guy, who was alive at the time. Okay, and, right. Um, you had high hopes. unfortunately, that, that didn't happen. I, I knew she wanted to meet me, but I couldn't, you know, we didn't get a chance. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, yeah, it was it was, it was good there. And I, and I know a lot of people thought, just by my actions and, and my movements, that I wasn't interested in the game and, and that because I walked from where we got introduced to one I walked out into position and, and had a jacket on, had my hands in my pockets, and you know people weren't, they thought that I wasn't interested, but as Peter Sterling said, when he was interviewed after the game, that he said, look, I knew he was ready to play, he said, that's what he's like, you know, and um, so I, I, I copped a bit of criticism for that, because I had my hands in the pockets and that, but that was just me, and And that, but yeah, it was great, a a great experience. As I said, it was unusual playing against Sturlow and John Muggleton, who was also in the whole side from Parramatta. But but, um, yeah, it was good to be able to go on and and obviously win the game. And and I was fortunate to get the man the match uh, and was told afterwards that I was the first Australian to ever. Achieve that, so that was something very
0: special as well. There you go, Brett. You just put that as another achievement in the pocket, the very large pocket. Um, I I mean, just on that uh, criticism you copped, I mean, I just can't imagine the English media being critical of anyone, surely. Does it sound like that was just paper talk, just trying to put you off or have a go, make a headline out of something? Oh, look,
1: I just think, you know, it was just because it was unusual, you know, I mean, I was an Australian and I was there... um, as I said, I I wasn't rude to anyone. Um, I stood there. I had my hands in my pockets. I really don't know what to do with my hands in those situations. Yeah. I'll always. I'm not sure what to do. If I've got pockets. I always put my hands in the pockets. Um, so yeah, and I, I just took my hand out, shook hands with with everyone. Um, there were a, a couple of people that I got introduced to that actually stayed and had quite a quite a bit of a chat with me. Yeah. Asking me what it was actually like here in Australia and everything. So I mean, obviously didn't didn't. Um, offend them, but yeah, I guess some people in the media just thought, oh well, they they need someone to have a shot at, and why not me? <laughs> well, they obviously knew I wasn't going to be there after the game. I was well, I was going home a few weeks later, but so I was probably an easy target because they could tell they liked knowing that I wouldn't be there in about another month. I'd be gone, so. It um, that's
0: probably what happened. Could have yeah. always been worse, uh, Brett. You could have been trying to work out what you do to do with your hands, and you could have gone for a high five or a fist pump. Um, so you could yeah. al- it could yeah. always have been worse. <laughs> so don't feel bad about it. I, I did notice in that game. Obviously, you know, I was thinking about um, what you thought of your personal attributes as a player, and in that game, you obviously threw a few amazing dummies um, and and split the defense right up the middle. I actually put out a question on Twitter, um, not necessarily related to you. I just said, I wonder what the people think of who the best intercept exponents were. And your name was the one that came back the most. Um, You're sort of viewed as a bit of an intercept king. Do you see yourself that way? And, and if so, did you have to train to do something like that, or did it just sort of come naturally as an instinct? Well, it was
1: probably something that, I guess, came natural more than anything. Um, and I guess, yeah, I, I did get quite a few intercepts throughout my career, but I also missed quite a few too. <laughs> um, you know, there was quite a, a number of times where some of the players threw the dummy and I've put the hand out to go for the intercept and they've just run past me. So, um, you yeah, know, I've missed a few. Th- thankfully, not as many as what I was able to get. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I, look, I, I think it, it just came down to the hand-eye coordination. And, um, you know, some people used to say to me how do you work on taking an intercept? And I said, well, the the thing is you watch the ball. Yeah. And I said, but that's what can also bring you unstuck as well because you're watching the ball and as the ball gets, as your hands move out to pass the ball, if they don't release it, well, you know, you you can't take it and then there's only a split second in that and and that's all they need to to throw the dummy and, and go. So... Yeah, nine times out of ten, I, I was able to to take the ball, but there were, were occasions where, you know the guys were, were good enough and smart enough to go. Well, I'll throw the dummy here and I'll yeah. hold on to it, and he'll go for the intercept, which I did, and uh, made me look pretty ordinary at times.
0: <laughs> Brett, did you ever were you sort of sweating on them? Did you have a, a mindset where you were act- actively thinking about intercepts, or was it more?
1: Well, some look, the, the, some depending on the situation of the game and the position I was in where I was standing, sometimes I was in a position where I'm thinking, I've got nothing else to do here other than to try and take an intercept because I'm gonna I'm caught out, if I move in to make a tackle, he'll pass it and they'll score. So I was in a position where I really couldn't do one or the other and thought, no, I'm just gonna to have to try and read this and get, hopefully he passes it and I'll be able to take it and, and um, as I said, nine times out of 10, that's what would happen, but other times, you know, they'd try the dummy and, and away way they go and I'd be left stranded there, turning walking back after they would just scored a try, but, but um yeah, it was just, it was just an instinct thing and, and, and you just watch the football and I mean after a while you you can watch the players and you can sense what they're going to do. Yeah. And and that was another thing, you know, you used to think, Yeah, he'll pass it here shortly, he's gonna have to pass it and, um I've actually I've I've seen some footage of some of the games or that I played with and some of the intercepts I've taken. I was actually surprised myself. Now I was able to do it so close to the player that passed the ball. It wasn't one where he'd thrown a long pass and I'd run through and caught it. It was actually right there. I could have <laughs> tackled him. Really, yeah. And I was actually surprised myself. I thought, geez. I- I didn't remember doing that, and and uh, but anyway, I am actually quite surprised I was
0: able to achieve it. Yeah, you were a thief in the night, and it sounds as though, as you from what you're saying, that you, you probably just over time you just became so good at reading the game or reading certain players that you almost felt like you could predict the future to some degree. So maybe that's what made you successful there, Brett. I, I couldn't have you on as well and not talk about your career and and one King Wally Lewis, uh, the other royalty from uh, the north of the border. Um, your career is often portrayed in the media, Brett, as sort of having a, a big rivalry uh, with Wally Lewis. Did you guys see it that way? Did you see yourself as a major rival to Wally Lewis? Or is that sort of something that's more about public perception than anything else?
1: Uh, I think it was more a media thing. But, uh, I mean, look, I, I guess we we played against each other. We were rivals so that, in that way, in that instance. I guess you could say, yes, we were rivals. But... But um, you know, we we respected each other, and and we actually got on really well together. And and some people were quite surprised because they just think, well, if you play for New South Wales, you play for Queensland, you must hate him, you know. <laughs>
0: and, and
1: that wasn't the case. It was, and I, and I think the reason being was there, there was a lot of times, obviously, um, with the publicity and promotion of state of origin, they'd have myself and Wally together doing something, um, photo shoots and things like that. I remember the. There was a photo shoot that was um, of Wally and I having an arm wrestle, and <laughs> that was on the that was on the front page or the front cover of the Big League magazine. And that same photo became uh, on the... it was put on in a copper made of copper and put on the original State of Origin trophy.
0: Yeah, so, right. It's been immortalised. Um,
1: I mean, that was a shield. Yeah. The, I mean, now they play for the Harvey Norman one, and I think, but I still think they give the shield to the winning state at the end of the know series, and that's the one that's got myself and Wally on it. Um, and then, so, as I said, you know, we we, we were involved in a lot of uh, pre-game promotions, and you know, got to to know each other pretty well. We I obviously toured with Wally in '82, and and um, we got to know each other then, and. Uh, and, and obviously the more Origin games we played, the more promotional work we did for Origin. You know, we we got to know each other pretty well and in '86, he was the captain of the Australian team, played 5-8 and I played in the centres with Gene Miles and, you know, we all got on really well and, and um, so I guess, look, you could probably say yes, I was a rival uh, when it comes to playing the game but um, as far as our um personnel is concerned and, and and that we we just got on really well together and we've been great mates ever since
0: now brett because i'm a dyed in the wool new south wales supporter uh, i need to know this who won the arm wrestle
1: well to be honest i can't remember I, <laughs> well i don't think there was a winner in the end but i know, I know the hardest thing for me was to try and be serious um <laughs> yeah. and that's what that was all about they wanted us to have uh, we had to have an ex, a serious expression on our face when we were doing it, and I would look at Wally and I'd start laughing, and uh, and then he, he couldn't help but follow after that. And so it, yeah, it did take quite a while for us to get it done properly. But um, I'm
0: just yeah, a, I'm just imagining. Uh, sorry, Brett, I'm just imagining that big league where it's just you on the front and with Wally, and you're both just embracing each other in laughter. State the state of Origin mythology wouldn't be the same, would it, if it was that photo? Well,
1: I think with Origin, you know, you. If, it um, it was a great rivalry you know, and I mean a, a great concept. Uh, I know people were talking about it when it first started. they said this will never work, you know, and here we are now. Not, I don't know how many years—forty years or so—into origin, and, and um, it's been a great concept, and and it's a game that I think most, if not all, rugby league players want to play in. Yeah. Um, I mean I. I I've been quite surprised at times when you hear maybe a former player or you read something about a former player and they've said, you know what, the only disappointment I've ever had in the game was not playing Origin, and yet they played for Australia.
0: It's amazing, isn't it? It is sort of seen as almost a higher mantle.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and, and And I think the unfortunate thing, well, back when I was playing back in the 80s, and early '90s, Australia dominated the international game so much. Um, you know, people looked at Origin as, as the toughest game of rugby league, and, and it and for me, it was. It was the toughest game of rugby league you could play. It was an Origin game, and 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 I think that's what it was. Every player wanted to play, be part of that. And as I said, some of them actually never got to play Origin. They just, for whatever reason. They got to play for Australia, but didn't play for New South Wales or Queensland. And that was their biggest disappointment. And that sort of tells you how big big the game game was. And today's Origin Games, I'm really not sure of. I um, I know, you know, we're we're looking at the safety of players and making sure they don't get injured too much or any serious injuries. But, um, you know, I still have people say to me around Origin time, that's not the same. We need mm. to have fights in the first five minutes. You know, they always talk about you never wanted to miss the first five minutes of a game because there was always a fight in a scrum.
0: That's right, almost yeah, like without fail, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, it was. And I used to, you know, I do a little bit of guest speaking, and I often say to people, you know, I remember one game I was in the change rooms and I saw all the forwards up in a corner having a bit of a chat, and I thought, well, this would be a good conversation to get involved and listen to this. These like talk, but when I got up there, that's what they were talking about, what was going to happen in the first scrum. And that was a reality. That's what it used to be like. Yeah. You know, there would be a fight in the first scrum. I would stand out there at 5'8". I'd look across to Wally, and he'd look at me, and he'd sort of give me a nod and go, yep, I know. And <laughs> So we all, they did, they did the same thing. We all knew that there was going to be something happen. The ball would get fed. Whoever won the scrum, the ball would get passed out to the 5'8", who would then pass it to the centre. They'd get tackled. We'd all turn around, look over at the scrum there. The fight was on. <laughs> People go over, sort it all out. And this is where I'll give Barry Gomisell a big laugh. I know he copped a lot of criticism as a referee, but Barry would go over and he'd say, righto, that's all been sorted play the ball back over here and that was it done, no penalties, nothing Let's just get on with the football and, but that was it and the crowd loved it and it only happened in that scrum very rarely did you see any more fights after that yeah. um, and that was it but the people enjoyed it, now they don't and I I mean and I, I guess the people that don't enjoy it obviously the older ones, the younger ones have probably never seen the origin games from the 80s so they wouldn't know but um, it certainly has been a great concept, and I, I just I would like to see them, you know, take this no punching rule out of the game. And um, to me, it, it's it, it's not helping the game at all because now we're seeing players who are thinking to themselves, if I give this back a bit of a slap on the cheek, he might react to that, and I might get a penalty. And so they're only doing it for that reason, but it just doesn't look good.
0: It is a bad yeah. look, isn't it, Brett? You're right. For such a uh, you know a high contact game, to see uh, the thing that I think I hate the most is to see a small number seven come up to a front row forward and slap him in the face with impunity, and the forward knowing you can't really do anything about it. I feel like that exactly. frustration sort of comes out in other ways anyway. Even though they've banned the punch, it feels like there's still a lot of argy bargy. It's anything but a punch, basically, isn't it? Yeah.
1: Look, I think you're right with it. That- the little guys now are picking on the big guys and um, I just think you know like, I, I look at someone like Michael Ennis when he was playing and, and the things he used to do and get away with and I thought <laughs> if he played in the 80s he'd probably only do it for two weeks and then <laughs> after that he'd be sick and tired of looking at his face being black and blue every weekend <laughs> but I mean that, that was that was the way the game was and, and I think if it's allowed to go back to that way a little you won't see all this other stuff and and I've got to be honest, I feel sorry for a lot of the mums because if you remember, I think it was a gentleman by the name of David Smith who was um, the CEO of the NRL at the time and he, he introduced the Nate Punching rule and this was brought in after Paul Gowan hit Nate Miles.
0: That's right, yeah, that was the moment, at- the, the punch that was heard around the world
1: and that was it and they said that's it now I was at that game in the grandstand and there were women there as well and, and they were standing up and they were cheering and carrying on they know more about the game than that Blake did than yeah. that David Smith they knew, They know what's going on they know their 7 year old 8 year old son's not going to be involved in that sort of thing in his game but they're the ones that they, the, the league want to turn around and say we're doing this for them
0: yep and maybe maybe not that, with consulting them either, just doing it for them out yeah, of an optics and, thing. And they,
1: they, the women know more about the game than a lot of the men that are running it, you know. And and I, I just think, it, my view is, look, if you're concerned about your son playing rugby league, don't let him play. End of story. Yeah, fair enough. You know, you'd, you'd like them to play the game, and it is a good game, it's a great game, and, um, you know as I said, you'd like to have more kids playing the game, but if they don't want them to play, well, so be it. Him. This is the way the game, not the way it is now, but if you go back to the 80s say, this is the way the game is, that's it. Can't do anything else with it. That's what we're doing. And unfortunately now, you know, they're trying to please everybody. And I think that's ruining the game.
0: It is. It's sort of attacking the fabric of the game a little bit, isn't it? Because there's one thing that Rugby League isn't, and it's not OzTag, and it's not touch football. So... The physicality, I think, is what brings a lot of the, the fans in, and, and that's what's sort of fairly unique about the sport. I feel like taking a lot of that away, uh, you're sort of taking away its unique properties a bit.
1: Well, it, it certainly is. I mean, it, it was known as a gladiatorial sport, you know, and, and you, you would talk to people that have been at the games, and they would say, oh, you know, I was lucky enough to sit on the fence now for today's game, and you could hear the bodies hitting each other. Yep. And they thought it was great, you know, and that was part of the game. That's what they enjoyed, the body contact of players. Some people didn't like, other people, you know, didn't like seeing too many fights and, and that. But at the end of the day, they just knew that was part of the game. Absolutely. And, it, you know, you, you've got grown men playing against each other at a very intense sort of sport and gladiatorial. And sometimes tempers get frayed and, and people do things because of their temper and and, and you know might throw a punch or push someone and then that person might throw the punch after being pushed but once it happens it wouldn't last any more than thirty seconds and it would be all
0: over and everyone would be back to playing and the league again. Absolutely. And hopefully it was it would be Michael Ennis lying flat on the ground. Um, mate, you know, I I will let you go pretty soon, mate, because you've been very generous with your time. I've just been fascinated listening to your thoughts. If you could pick any player, um, that's since you've retired who plays the most like you, is there a 5-8 out there in the game that you think is the the closest to the game that you had? Oh, I really
1: don't know. It's a tough question, and obviously, with the way the game's played now, they do play a lot differently. Yeah. Um, I, I've got to t- say, I, I get a bit frustrated sometimes with, with guys um, playing 5-8 who just pass the ball and think, well, that's it, I've done my job. Yeah. And, you know, you think, mate, you've got to support these guys or maybe run around behind him and, and back him up on the outside or back him up on the inside. Don't just pass and say, well, that's my job done. And I don't know how many times you see guys that, receive the ball from the final eight and and get into into a tackle and then start looking to offload and there's no one there and you think and that's where you should be that's part of your job your job is not just to pass the football yeah Um, couldn't
0: agree with you more Brett. I see that a lot Um, and you're right it's almost this idea of I'm playing my lane I've done my role now it's somebody else's turn and that's you know the the art of support play is a, a little bit of a I feel like it could be a lost one and the person that I look to in the modern game that seems to be the best exponent of that at the moment is Luke Keery. He does that a fair bit. What Do you have any opinions on Luke? He's... Oh,
1: yeah. Look, I think he, he's an outstanding young player. And and, um, and when you consider the size of him, I, I remember running into him in a golf day. Um, <laughs> okay. And um, they, he, he was in the group turning off just before us. And, and I had a bit of a chat to him. And I thought, geez, he's a little bloke. and uh, But, yeah, he... He's a type a bit a bit of old school, I guess you could say. Um, so he's probably been the closest one I I can think of, um, just off the top of my head. But uh, you know, he, he's prepared to, to to back up his players and and do more. And and, and I think that's the with part of the game at the moment is that players have got that mentality that well, this is what I do and that's it.
0: Yeah, I've got my role. How, yeah,
1: that's yeah, and um. Mate, he's your bloke. If you miss him, well, I don't get into trouble. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's your bloke, not mine. You know, well, back when we played, it didn't matter. Yes, you had a guy that was there to be tackled. Um, but you'd like to think that if I'm struggling, my teammates are come in and help me. And vice versa. If you see a teammate struggling with the guy that he was marking, well, you come in and help him. Uh, that was the way it was. And, and I just think, you know, that we've got to try and get the game back to that. It, it, um you know, it, it, it's freezing a bit there are people, you're hearing of, of stories of people walking away from the game, you know, don't watch it anymore or if they do watch it they don't watch it as many they don't watch as many games as they probably could mm. because they get bored with it and uh, I know myself I've done it at times where I've started to watch a game and I've changed the channel you know, and then I I've, I've flick back to see what the score is and maybe watch it a bit more because it looked a bit exciting and then then uh, this is the same dribble that we've been getting previously, and change the channel again,
0: and and um, it's just become too structured for my liking." Mm. Well, that was going to be a question I was going to ask you, Brett. It sounds like you've already answered it for me, though. I was going to say, if you could change anything about the modern game, what would it be? I'm assuming for you, it's it's very much that it's overly structured, and you'd like to see, um, yeah, less structured play.
1: Yeah, I, I think. We need, we need to get our players to start thinking about the game more. Mm. I mean, I, I look, I, I don't know. I, I'm not there with, with they train and, and when they play and, that, and with the coaches. But I, from what I can see, I, I tend to think that they don't think too much about All they do is just worry about what they're being told. This is where you've got to be on this tackle and that's it. They don't worry about, well, for an instance where they might say, well, we've got to be on... On the right hand side of the field, on tackle three, and on the left hand side of the field, they've got one player defending, and you've got four players out there in attack. But we'll go right because that's where we've got to be. And you go, hang on. <laughs> you go left, you can score a try. Yeah, but, one switch
0: play, then, and you're dead.
1: And, and you're there. And, and the unfortunate thing is, it's so structured that they don't think about that. Mm. It's, uh, it's funny you mentioned that, down. Brett.
0: I, I definitely, there is a distinct lack of even just switching the play. You used to see that a lot more, even only 10 to 15 years ago, where someone would go two passes wide and then someone like Joey Johns, for example, would throw a 30-metre a pass the other way, a, 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 on the other side of the ruck. Those kind of things yeah. you don't see as much because I, I feel like it's less reading of the game and more structure. Well, that,
1: that's it. And, and a lot of things now is... The... From what I've been told, a lot of the young kids have been taught now to look side to side, not what's in front. Yeah. And I think there's, that's half the problem, is they don't look what's in front of them. And I always say to them, you just play what's in front of you. Yeah. Don't worry about what's going on out in the left, hand, side, right. Play what's in front of you. Have a bit of a look left and right, see what's going on. But you look what's in front of you. And I even had an instance where I was talking to a, um, a guy who was doing some um, coaching out in the bush, and he watched the game, and he said, I watched this young kid, he said, playing 5-8, he said there was a gap, you could drive two semi-trailers through in yeah. front of him, and he said, he passed the ball to the left.
0: Oh, and Oh, wow.
1: Got tackled. And he said, that was a perfect example, he said, there are kids, all he was doing was looking left and right, didn't look what was in front of him, mm. and if he had it, he would have been able to run through the gap, if not scored, maybe set up a try, but Unfortunately, this is what's going on now they They just seem to be they're not allowed to just play their natural game, and I, I do believe in the nrL we've got players that are running around that have got more ability than we see because they're not allowed to chip over the top and regather. Well, I know we don't do that. we can't do that because it could be a mistake come up you know i yeah. uh, just I just think that that's problem we we need to. I believe don't know whether this is right or not. It's just a bit of a theory. But I believe that if we had a coach take his team to win a premiership and he played the way the game was played in the 80s or early 90s or 70s or 60s, even go back to the 60s where that was a real rough and tough sort of game. But even if they played it the same style and won the premiership, I think everyone else would do the same.
0: Yeah. I, I, you, it's a, a funny higher, thing though. you're right rugby league's a funny game for me I, my observation of it is often we're a little bit too much like sheep I feel like a lot of teams are trying to follow what the successful teams are doing and they're trying to they're put that formula onto their team as opposed to as you as you say maybe playing the natural strengths of your team uh, if someone for example has that natural ability to kick a ball over the top maybe not such yeah. a bad idea to let the tiger out of the cage exactly you've got to
1: let them do that and, and if they do it yeah, they do it at, at, at times and they make a mistake you just go through with them and let them know and I remember when I was coaching at Penrith I was um, coaching the Jersey Flag. Penrith 2005 I think it was and okay. we had a young kid by the name of Jared Zemmett
0: Ah uh, yes I remember him well
1: and, Yeah and he was playing 5-8 and, and a couple of times he put a little chip over the top and it didn't work and, and one instance there, we played at St. George and they scored off his chip and won the game and anyway I had a bit of a chat to him and said mate I don't want to stop you from doing it because when you do it well you do do it well but it was just a case of teaching him as to know when to do it yes and what part of the field to do it in and and as I explained to him I said mate there's a minute to go we're six points behind and we're 20 meters off our line and tackle four or five and you want to do it I said yep do it doesn't matter you know yeah what have you got to lose um, there are other times you you'd do it in other situations. But I, I just think it, uh, sometimes a lot of coaches, and, and even at junior levels, they kid do something and it doesn't work for them. And they say, right, that's it, scrap that. You don't do that. You know, And you think, hang on, he's it, probably very good at it. It just didn't work that day.
0: Yeah, that's right. That's footy. Sometimes and, it's just picking your spots, isn't it, Brett?
1: Yeah, you know, and, and of, it's not a case of just saying, no, that's it, don't do it. Work with the kid and teach him. If you know if you know how to do it, and I'm always never one for doing it. I couldn't really teach them anything about it, but <laughs> I would I would sit there and say, mate, you just need to learn when to do it. That's it. Yeah. Don't say mate, that's it, I don't want you doing it anymore. We just gotta learn and you've gotta learn when to do this type of play. You know, when is the best time to do it? And once you start to learn that You'll find you'll be doing it, and you'll become more successful, more successful. So, um, yeah, I, I just think you know we, we they all seem to want to close kids down and and people that just have natural ability with certain parts of the game, and they don't want them to use that because, as far as they're concerned, that's not a, a simple way of playing the game. It's that's not a structured way of playing, and they want to play structured.
0: Completely agree with you, Brett. Um, You were definitely preaching to the choir on that point. Mate, I'll I'll finish off with one last question, if that's okay. Um, Forward-looking, 2020 Premiership. Can we get a bit of uh, Brett Kenny wisdom? Who do you think is going to take it out?
1: Oh, geez.
0: And you can't (laughs) say Parramatta for the sake of it, Brett. You can't do that. No, no.
1: Well, look, to be honest, I couldn't say Parramatta could win the Premiership in 2020. But um, obviously the Roosters are going to be there again, I, I believe. They will be up there. Somewhere. The storm, I'm not sure of. Um, but, oh, look. look you know, I'm, I'm a, I'll say the Raiders.
0: Okay, okay. yeah, fair enough. I, g- I think
1: the Raiders might be a good chance to go and win it next year.
0: Are you going under the philosophy uh, you have to lose one to win one, or have you just got a feeling well, about it?
1: I've just got a feeling, you know. I think they've, they've got a coach there that's been there and done all that. Um, they've got some good players that I think they've bought well uh, and, I, and I think just yeah, the, with the experience that they, they've got a lot of good young players there as well I think with the experience that they would have picked up out of that grand final um, and the way Ricky's got the the whole club or in fact the whole town or the city of Canberra they, they, everyone seems to love their team, their rugby league team down there and,
0: yeah.
1: and, I, and I think they could really do something next year and and, uh, yeah, they might be a team that could go on and and win it. I don't, Everyone will say the Roosters, obviously, but I think,
0: you know, outside of the Roosters, I think the Raiders could be a chance. Could be a grand final replay, Brett. Mate, I just want to say thank you again for joining me on the Voluntary Tackle today. It's been an absolute pleasure um, to hear your insights about the game and, and certainly I have a, a big overlap with you in terms of opinion about a lot of that. Um, but, yeah, just a, a huge thank you for coming on the show, mate. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, mate, that's all. I totally enjoyed it. Thanks for
0: having yeah, me. Yeah, likewise, and hopefully we can have you on again down the track.